ACRA with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots podcast. I am Jana and today we're showcasing some of the companies present at this year's International Conference on Robotics and Automation, ICRA for short, which just took place in Stockholm, Sweden. ICRA is one of the biggest international forums to allow researchers from all over the world to come together and showcase their work. Our interviewer Audra Nash was there for us, having a look around and catching up with a few of the exhibitors. In today's episode, we'll listen in on his conversations with representatives from Scania, PAL Robotics, Husqvarna Group and Anybody Technology, with whom he chatted about a range of topics, including autonomous trucks, humanoids and lawnmowers. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hey. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, Sohil Salipur, working at Scania. Can you tell me what you have at your booth? Uh, well, uh, we are working with automatic trucks and uh, a platooning project uh, for long haulage trucks uh, to save the energy. So tell me a bit about Scania. Uh, Scania is, uh, is a truck company since uh, 125 years ago, uh, producing truck. Um, Mm-hmm. And so, large truck for transporting uh, goods, a big trailer behind full of goods, right? Yes. Okay, and so your interest is in automating those trucks, correct? Yes. Uh, and, yes. So, and you mentioned platooning. Is it, are you looking at a single truck being autonomous? as well as a platoon of trucks driving, or are you looking at a series of autonomous trucks driving behind one driver? Uh, it's, it's, of course, a series of trucks. Uh, okay, so w- there would be the front truck with a dr- person driving, and then several trucks without people driving, following. Uh, well, it, uh, not like, like that, because of authority you know, needs that we have driver as well. But uh, you know, to decrease the the personal uh, the personal fault, and to keep this distance between this between between the autonomous truck and the manual truck, uh, we need to drive it automatically. Okay, and now explain this distance. So it's a slipstream effect, like race cars do, to shoot past each other. So driving right behind so that the first truck moves the air out of the way and then the second truck doesn't have to go through the air resistant thus it's more efficient yes it's more efficient and we can save uh, almost 10 percent with fuel consumption by slipstreaming trucks yes for three trucks that's incredible so what kind of sensors are you putting on trucks to allow them to drive in formation? Uh, well, we have several. We have GPS, where we have camera, three-dimensional camera, and we have radar. 
and side sensors as well. What's, what do you mean by three-dimensional camera? Is it stereo vision? Is it the uh, light... I don't know, laser camera? Are you doing structured lighting? or It's the stereo cameras. Stereo cameras? Yes. Okay. And we put uh, stereo cameras in front. Uh, we analyze the object. We have dynamic and statical objects uh, to recognize them and, uh, and find the obstacles as well. What do you mean? You mean in some long haulage, uh, you have these trucks, and maybe some some cars uh, come uh, in the middle of two tracks. So it's an obstacle for us. Uh, I see. So this is happening on roads, uh, driving on the highway in this kind of thing? Yes, of course. I see. Is this deployed now? Uh, well, uh, yes, we, we, we had a competition, European competition, uh, from different companies. And we drove, uh, we were driving from the Stockholm to Netherlands uh, with uh, our long haulage tracks for some days. I see. What is the timeline time for larger deployment? Well... Uh, I'm not really sure, but after 2020. But after 2020? Yes. But we can have it in restricted area like mines uh, after 2008. 2008? 2018, sorry. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, I am Judith. I am working for Pal Robotics. Uh, this is a company that is based in Barcelona, in Spain. And we started, we've been for more than 12 years now developing uh, humanoid robots and other platforms. Now, can you tell me what you have at the booth? Yes. Uh, on one side, we find RIMC. RIMC is our latest humanoid by now because we are working in the next iteration of them. And, well... It can dynamically work, it can grasp things, talk to people, have speech recognition, um, track faces with the eyes. Can you describe what he looks like? Yeah, it looks as a human, it weighs uh, 80 kilos, so it has legs, arms, it it hates uh, 1.65 meters, and it's really like inspired in a human body. Now, I noticed that it's on a... It's suspended. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not suspended. The crate is there for safetyness because it's 80 kilos, but it's really not hanging anything. So will he walk around? Yeah, he already did. Uh, in fact, uh, during this morning, yesterday and then, yes. uh, walking around the venue and waving to the people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it can work and it already did here. I see. Mm-hmm. So what kind of people are you thinking are interested in the humanoid robot? Basically, by now, um, research labs that um, are interested in doing some uh, research in humanoids and in dynamically working or in human-robot interaction because a humanoid makes an effect to people. So um, basically, this the latest uh, lab that bought it is uh, the Technical University of Munich and the Institute for Cognitive Systems. Mm-hmm. And, well, in fact, they will try to... Uh, put some skin on it uh, that they developed so we will see how this research goes on but there are many possibilities to do research with a humanoid platform like this 
And so how does he compare to other humanoid platforms, such as Boston Dynamics? Uh, it depends. Um, we, fo we really focus on making it very useful and easy to use by uh, research labs. That's why we base it everything in ROS. Uh, it works out of the box. It's really easy to command it and to control it. So we, we give some things that are already out of the box, like walking, grasping, uh, climbing a step, things like that. And we provide also support uh, for other uh, um, for, for software, for example, and other kind of applications. And then, sorry, and then another difference would be perhaps the the autonomy. Okay. Um, it can last up to two hours and a half, three hours walking, and six hours standby, or just doing manipulation tasks. Or yeah, mm -hmm. these would be two differences. I see. So, what kind of sensors does he have? Um, to navigate, it has four torque sensors in the ankles, mm -hmm. and then it also has an IMU. Okay, so uh, inertial measurement unit, accelerometer, yeah. gyroscope, yes. compass, magnetometer. Uh, okay. It has uh, more four torque sensors on the wrists. Yes. Uh, stereo cameras, it has lasers on the feet. Well, not this model, but it comes with that. Yes. In order to map and do path planning. Um, then sonars, three in the front, one mm -hmm. in the back. And microphones. And tell me about the eyes, too. The eyes, it's uh, stereo cameras. Stereo cameras? Yes. Interesting. So do you come with uh, this out-of-the-box operation? Does it come with working stereo depth yeah. perception? Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And he has his own operating well, system and everything, I take it. Yeah, well, it, it, it works with ROS. It's ROS-based. So, But well, could I boot up a Linux kernel on him? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It works with uh, Linux and then... We have different layers of different um, middleware, so... Ah, I see. Mm -hmm. But it's really open source. The simulation is available online, so... And now tell me a bit about the hands. I see that mm -hmm. they have articulated fingers. Yeah, well, it's a soft hand. It's under-actuated. Yes. It was developed uh, in collaboration with the University of Pisa. Mm -hmm. And it has three motors. One for the thumb, one for the index finger, and one for the, the other three. Ah. And it can easily adapt to any shape and also, I don't know, grasp, for example, clothes, things that aren't rigid. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, it's a very useful hand for research because it's not delicate. So if something happens with it, there's no problem of uh, worrying about breaking it. Yes, so you can hit the fingers and because it's underactuated, you're basically pulling a string that's elastic. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that closes the fingers so they exactly. can kind of flex around whatever mm -hmm. they're around. I see. Now, it looks like it's modular by construction, at least where the hands are. Yes. So yeah, you can fact, swap additional hands on? Yes. Well, we, if, if the, another kind of model of, is provided, you can attach it, and we can design the, the, the thing that will um, attach to it and to customize it. Yeah. So it's not a standard interface? It's known by the company? By this, the, the robot, yes. It's or, I mean, specifically the hand interface. Mm -hmm. With like common off-the-shelf shelf manipulators, yeah. would they work with this, or would the company pal have to create or basically give them the file or the design so that they could make it interface with it? No, or is it we a would do that. We would do that. I mean, if they send us their uh, if they send us their model of uh, gripper or end, or end effector that they want to uh, attach to it, yes, then they, we can uh, do something that. That really attaches, and, and then we integrate it as well. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Hi, can you introduce yourself? 
Yeah, hi. I'm uh, I'm Björn Manfred, working for uh, Husqvarna in Sweden as a, as a roboticist, an engineer. Can you tell me what you have at your booth? Yes, definitely. Uh, what we have here is an uh, autonomous lawnmower that we have been working on for 20 years and selling for 20 years. Uh, so. Uh, a lot of Americans are not aware about it, but in fact, in Europe, we're selling more than 100,000 units a year. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the lawnmower? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what you do is you put down a, a perimeter wire at the, to define your garden. Uh, and then the robot moves around and uh, continuously keeping your lawn in perfect condition mm-hmm. by cutting off the grass a little bit at a time. Yes. So, what kind of sensors and actuators? Uh, Let's actu- start with sensors, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, sensors are... I mean, this robot is capable of uh, outdoor operation for 10 straight years, 24-7. So, we need to engineer it as simple as possible. So, the sensing is... The most important, I would say, is the magnetic sensors that are sensing the boundary area of the robot. Uh, aside from that, we draw a lot of conclusions from, uh, from wheel currents and... Uh, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are sensing uh, the tilt of the of the robot. What do you mean wheel currents? Uh, you're not wheel encoders? No, dry, I mean I mean uh, cut, cutting wheel cutting wheel currents. Oh, cutting wheel, so I if see. it's thick grass, the current goes up. We need to do some spiral patterns to more effective, effectively cut it. Um, but to, then, so I'm curious about localization right, and moving right. around the lawn. Yeah. Well, if you do your probabilistic math, you will see that after. In order to cover 98.5% of the lawn, you would, in average, need to be three times on each position. So that is really not that bad. <laughs> so, Why is that? Why do you have to be in every position three times? Yeah, that is a, a sort of a I would assume you would just have to go everywhere once. And yeah, yeah, sure, if you know exactly where you are. But then, oh, you- then it comes to high-precision positioning, which is a, a different story because that requires a lot more technology. Ah. So what sensors are you using for localization? We do have a standard GPS. It's GPS, yeah, really? It, yeah, but that's, uh, that is mostly to, to see... Is that it? Or no, right. what, what else yeah. do you have? No, it's, that is, that's it. Ultrasonics or something? Yeah, on the bigger models trees? we have ultrasonics. So uh, if my lawn has trees in it? Yeah, it can gently bump into them. That's no, no, no big deal because it's a very robust mechanics. And, and they have tactile sensors, so it senses... As soon as it bumps into something, it senses that and backs off. So how many... How accurate is the GPS? The GPS is about uh, one or two meters, but I mean we don't. Ah, uh, this the, is where your probabilistic math comes in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the GPS is more like, okay, I need to go to the front side of the house now because I haven't been there that much, or I need to go to the back side. But I mean, the, the, the lawn gets covered by probabilistic, probabilistic methods, hmm. so that's that's really not an issue because. And, and an advantage of that is also that the, get, the grass gets cut from every possible direction, so you get a perfectly even lawn, which is really nice, actually, when you see it. Okay, how long does it take to mow a lawn as compared to a human who would just pass everything once? Well, it takes uh, zero time for you. Because for the human, of course. For the human, And it yeah. goes back to its charging station? Yeah, automatically, yeah. And so I assume, so the charging station, how does that work? Yeah, it's the same there. That you have. So you guide you have it some, back in with yeah. the GPS, but then I assume no, you, you guide have to it like... back with some magnetic fields as well. Ah, yeah. no, so it senses the magnetic field from the charging station and can automatically go back there when it's time to charge it. 
How, how do you do that? Do you have some sort of Hall effect sensor? Yeah, you could say that, yeah. Or is it like a magnetometer or something and it would recognize, does it have like a big magnetic field and you can recognize it from far away or is it almost like you have to be right away. there? Yeah. No, we can be 100 meter away from the... And recognize where the charging station is? Yes, no, not exactly the charging station. That you could search, search a way to yeah. by different means. But, but okay. the, the outer boundary we can sense 100 meters away from it. I see. So this technology hasn't changed much in 20 years, you're saying? Well, I mean, the, the laws of currents and magnetic fields has been the same. Of course, we have refined the product, and a lot of work has been put down to making it work all the time. I mean, robustness, simplicity, uh, efficiency, yeah. a, lot of, uh, a lot of those stuff. Is there, are there newer versions that have additional sensors? Um, like, say, a LiDAR or a computer vision system? No. Or like a Roomba or something with like a right, North right, Star right. principle? For yeah, I mean, indoor that's fairly simple, but outdoors we have the different lightning conditions. Yes. We, are, we are mowing 24-7 from, from March to November in Sweden. Yes. So, I mean, if I went to the long-term autonomy session this Monday, and that was really interesting, but, but we realized that it's quite, a, quite some research to do until you, until you really can solve that problem. And our, our what approach about, is... What yeah. about LiDAR? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, still, it's outdoors. It's a whole different requirements from, uh, from indoor. And also, remember, it's a consumer LiDAR product. doesn't work well outdoors? Depends on the LiDAR, but, I mean, it also... I mean, you wouldn't have to read the intensity values from what it's reflecting off of. I assume there'd be a lot of variance in that, and you wouldn't yeah, right. use it for localization. Right. But, but, okay, look at this this way. We have sold... We have about 500,000 units operating. Yeah. So every minute, we have... One million attempts to escape from the boundary. So, if you if you ask a researcher of lidar slam, how how good is your positioning? And he will say, yeah, it works good in the lab most of the time. Then my product manager will say, well, if it fails even one of these million times a minute, I mean that would mean a failure each minute. That would mean we don't have a product. So, so that's sort of our end of the spectrum, that we have a lot of products out and they must work all of the time. I see. So if this mows the lawn for a very long period of time so it can pass everything three right. times, right? what happens if I have a dog or something like yeah, that? Yeah, actually that we have the dog are often in the beginning very curious about the robot. So they go there, then they, they look at it, it, and then they just say, okay, it's a robot, I don't care. <laughs> but could it, could it hurt someone? No. It's, I mean, it's a lot of safety regulations regarding this. If you look underneath it, obviously you can't do that on the radio, but you see that the cutting disc is actually fairly small and it's quite a distance to the edges. So I would say it's, it's a well-regulated area and very safe, now very you, safe stuff. Now, you mentioned that most Americans don't know this exists. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't know it exists. No. But why would you think that would be? I don't know. I mean, we have done some sales effort, and uh, the right persons would be to ask the sales department. I'm a research engineer, so I really don't know. But, uh, yeah, for different reasons. We're making an effort again this year, so I really hope that we could come through because we see a lot of interest from Americans when we're here. And I, it is a really, really good product, so I really hope we can get that through in the U.S. as well. Thank but, you. But, I mean, oh, yeah. we have actually missed the whole point of us being here because we're not here to sell sell robots we are here because I mean this robot is capable of being outdoor for, for 10 years autonomously driving around which is some, something that the research community today is really lacking 
So we want them to be able to do long-term autonomy research without bothering about the hardware platform. So what we have done here and what we are displaying is that we have added a ROS interface to, to our product. So you can really run all of your ROS stuff, your planning algorithms, your, you add your fancy sensors, everything, and run that on top of our super reliable product, which is really cool. And if you had come five minutes earlier, you would have seen the award ceremony for the competition because we have, we have received interest from all the top universities have put in applications like MIT, Stanford, Georgia Tech, and with really cool uh, descriptions of how they would utilize this platform in their research. So, so the winner of that is Georgia Tech, who are going to show us some... What is that? Yeah, Georgia Tech is a university. No, I mean, what, what is they're the winner of what? Of, of the research platform. Ah, so we how did they win them. it? And like, what was the competition? Yeah, their, pro- their proposal was to... Oh, it was a proposal. Yeah, what yeah, you would exactly. do with the... Yeah, exactly. So they are going to integrate their work uh, where they are combining path planning with SLAM in the same framework of, you know, the factor graph uh, probabilistic method stuff. So they are going to integrate that together, and by by giving them this platform, we hope that they can also apply this in an unstructured outdoor environment and be able to to evaluate their algorithms in outdoor in the real world. So we are really happy to see see about that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. Hello. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Mohamed uh, Shurije. I'm, uh, I'm a, an R&D engineer at uh, the Anybody Technology in Denmark. Can you tell me about Anybody, anybody Technology? Well, Anybody is a uh, musculoskeletal modeling and simulation package. Uh, so basically, we have skeleton plus uh, the biomechanics or biomechanical elements, uh, which are mainly muscles, tendons, uh, ligaments, uh, you know, 3D joints, uh, etc. So it's a software for simulating a three-dimensional person. Yes. Well, there are a lot of applications, but but mainly and putting them into uh, uh, you know simple words. So we do uh, human movement analysis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I see. What? Who? Who is interested in this technology? So a lot of applications. So we have a lot of uh, you know interest from the universities, basically researchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, a broad range of uh, applications, including, for example, uh, you know, gait analysis to see uh, how a normal population walk, what are the forces, what are the muscle activations, what are the joint loads, and how uh, these parameters or variables are changed in uh, pathologic populations like stroke, like, uh, uh, you know, cerebral palsy, for example, uh, people with uh, osteoarthritis, etc. So this is just just... Uh, one, uh, clinical applications. We have a lot of applications, for example, how the human body is interacting with the exoskeletons, which is like a new hot area, and how uh, a possible uh, prototype of an an exoskeleton is affecting the human body in terms of uh, biomechanical variables like uh, muscle forces, how it changes uh, the loads at the joints, how uh, it changes basically uh, uh, the force uh, so what are basically the forces at the straps of the exoskeleton, which is very important for patients. They complain a lot about uh, you know, excessive pressure at the uh, attachments of the exoskeleton to the human. So these are uh, the information, the pieces of information that we can provide to both uh, patients or human subjects as well as uh, technology producers. 
So how does the software work and how does it interface with research projects? Uh, the way it works, so it's standalone. Uh, it's so it's its own program. Its own program. It has its own uh, programming language. It's written in C++, but now it has uh, its own basic, basically syntax. So it's a library for C++? Uh, it's, it's not. So it's a higher level uh, it's, uh, uh, than C++. And then, uh, oh, I see. So it's a program written in C++ that you control from the graphical user interface. Something uh, like that? Uh, one way is to uh, basically control it from the uh, GUI. Uh, the one way is to write codes inside. One way is to write code outside in Python, in C++, MATLAB, for example, and then uh, you know, uh, call uh, anybody. Uh, you know, wrap around for optimization can be around it. Control algorithms can be around it. So there, there are different ways to interact with the software. I see. And so what is fundamentally being sold is a model of a person in software, correct? And how the muscle tendon skeletal system work? Uh, and more, methods more less, of analyzing. Um, well, basically, the, the soft, so there's a license that we sell. Uh, you know, one is license that we sell to both universities and uh, you know, uh, industrial institutions. Uh, but uh, some industries you know, uh, basically come to us for consultancy. So we take the projects... Uh, we, we perform it completely, and then we submit reports with, uh, you know, how the human was affected, uh, basically interacting with the product. So basically, human-centered uh, designs, uh, you know, in a mechanical design sense. So how is human uh, affected by those designs? So how did you develop this skeletal model? My guess would be that you watched a motion capture of a person, and then grabbed a few points from this motion capture footage, and then you developed a human model, and then you did some sort of machine learning to make it so that you would adjust the pull and everything of the weights to make it so that the gait would match and these kind of things over. Was it, is it different than that? Uh, sort of. Well, basically, uh, it has a lot of parameters and uh, basically calculations beforehand, lots of uh, data measurements. So I would say there's like 20 years of uh, research behind this. So lots of researchers have collaborated and contributed to this project. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, data uh, are basically captured from cadaveric studies uh, for the muscles. Uh, a lot of data are uh, basically... Uh, so what would you gain from a cadaver study? It would be the start and end point of a muscle or... It, muscle attachments, uh, some links that can be, uh, you know, generalized to like a living human. Uh, there, there are some parameters uh, and data that are needed to uh, be captured uh, during actually the living human, like in vivo we call it. And then uh, some, some data should be captured while the human is moving. Yes, and how, so how do you develop a human model and have it do things such as walk? Uh, so we have the generic models. Or so leg presses or anything that you're demonstrating. Correct. In the so we have uh, like the, uh, the repository of models. And then that, those models are generic, meaning that uh, there needs to be a, a scaling algorithm. So we scale the model in terms of length, in terms of uh, mass and inertia properties. So basically, once we scale that model, that generic model... What are we scaling? Uh, what is like the, model? the height and weight. Oh, I see. So, uh, you know, my height is different than, for example, yours. So if we have the generic model that I want to model you, would be different when I want to model myself. I see. You, so you scale the model to the person. Correct. And this would change the dynamics of the system. Of course. Okay. 
Uh, but then, so getting back to like walking and or the leg press. So there needs to be uh, some uh, measured data, uh, like kinematic data measured in the labs from Somehow. motion capture or some motion other capture method? is one option. Yeah. So people do uh, like is that the dominant markers. option or are there other ones? Uh, well, they can. Well, you can have like posture as well, as in robotics, for example. If the posture of the human is given. For example, how you would can, you get the ground truth of that? Uh, how would you get the pose of a person? Well, so the kinematics. So in general, if I want to answer that in a more general sense, uh, the kinematics can be measured in two ways. One is to put uh, markers on the body, like X, Y, Z. Uh, it will give you like a little location of markers and and this is another capture. This is motion capture, but another way is to get the, the joint angles. Of, uh, is that inaccurate? Um, it's been a research, so there are debates still around it uh, for like several years. So motion capture is time-consuming to apply, and you have to calibrate and everything. Correct. Correct. So and you it's need an to expensive do system because you have to have yeah. the lights and the reflective infrared. Oh, for the actual measurement, yes. So there's a lot of infrastructure, and they're quite expensive True. for like OptiTrack systems and this kind of thing. True. So this method of measuring joint angles would be much easier because it's just a strain sensor, right? Um, I didn't. I didn't quite mean that. Um, there are. I know there are some systems out there that can do that. For example, Xsense is a, one of our collaborators. Uh, uh, then they they have like IMUs. Yes. And then they at many they locations, and they gather exactly. all the data, and they fit that into a machine learned. Yeah. So my point is, you know, motion capture in the sense of uh, you know markers X, Y, and Z. That's not the only option. I see. What kind of interest have you had from people coming by the booth? Most researchers in this kind of thing. Is there anyone that wants to collaborate or use your system? Well, actually, a lot of uh, different applications. So this is like a robotics and uh, automation conference. Uh, most of the uh, interest, I would say, were in the uh, the exoskeleton project. So they want to uh, basically design their exoskeleton better. They want to evaluate their prototypes, or they want to basically, uh, in a computer way, evaluate their product before uh, to, into going into a uh, like physical prototype. Uh, so we got a lot of interest to collaborate. Um, for you know research, and also uh, interest in, in buying our product. Let's see, what are some limitations of this system for simulation? Are there any areas that it does not perform like a human would in real life? Uh, I would say the limitations uh, basically go back to the limitations uh, of the current research. So uh, you know, I did research on motion prediction. How uh, you know, starting from start from scratch. What would be uh, some optimal motion of a uh, you know normal subject walking, for example? Uh, the research was ongoing before I started, and it's still ongoing after like two years, three years after my PhD. Uh, it means that we are a long way. Uh, it's a long way to get to a point that we are certain that uh, you know prediction of motion is uh, uh, above 90% valid. Uh, and then if we do that for normal population. Uh, the main goal would be to predict motion for a pathology population. So if someone has a stroke, how would the motion change from a normal, uh, like an average of normal population to uh, a stroke population? And then how we can individualize that motion to a specific person saying that, okay, maybe after therapy, uh, the kinematics will change that way. And then for the exoskeletons, if we put the exoskeletons on a stroke, 
or uh, let's say uh, cerebral palsy or different people with different uh, like uh, pathology cases, uh, how would that affect the emotion and kinematic of that person? So that's an open question for the research. It's a limitation, I think, for the whole biomechanics community, including us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it for today. As always, check out robohub.org for more information on this episode and all the latest on the hottest topics and debates in robotics. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more coverage from ICRA 2016. Until then, goodbye! ICRA with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.